Hello and welcome. I'm your host, Jason Pereira. Today on the show, I have Sean Yeager, Vice President of Sales for DataSwift. DataSwift is a digital infrastructure solution for personal data access, storage, and portability. I brought him on the show to talk about not just his solution, but specifically the issues around identity rights and access to that identity. And with that, here's my interview with Sean. Sean, thanks for taking the time today. Thank you, Jason. Pleasure to be here. So, Sean Yeager of DataSwift, tell us about DataSwift. You bet. So in short, Jason, we are infrastructure, as you noted, that delivers personal data access, storage, and portability. So what does that mean? That means that for individuals, they get the security, ownership, and control of their private personal data. For enterprises, fintechs, and others, uh, many of your listeners, the ability to securely and in a compliant fashion transact on sensitive customer data without the liability of holding all of that data. And for developers, they get open source tools to, in a few lines of code, readily build compliant authentication and data storage. So an infrastructure company that is pushing the boundary of what it means to move from collect it all and centralize it all, which I appreciate is the default approach for many of these days, to data owned by individuals at the edge without the loss of the analytics and insights that, of course, at the end, uh, we also so desperately need to want. Okay, so this is uh, there's a lot to unpack there and a lot of hotly timed and contested viewpoints, which we'll get to on, on because we're, we're touching upon personal data rights, which is depending on what country you're in, anything from a entrenched right in law to a massive point of debate amongst lawmakers at this point. So absolutely, we'll, we'll get back to that in a second. So talk to me about your history and the origin of DataSwift and what was the gap in the market that was there that led to its creation? Sure thing. So uh, the brief background on me is over 20 years in business development and sales, infrastructure, software services, digital media, from Microsoft on the front lines during the browser wars, which dates me, to leading infrastructure teams for Accenture, to running BizDev for a couple of enterprise software companies, both of which happened to be acquired by IBM, to my own ventures. And the theme throughout the through line, if you will, is emerging technology brought to market and my work generally has been about finding those routes, finding those paths to market and determining the pricing models, the packaging, and ultimately, how do you sell these things? How do you offer these things repeatedly and scale that up? And so DataSwift emerged from the hub of all things project. And I'll, we, can, we can put that in the speaker notes, but in short, a multi-university research project in the United Kingdom over a number of years, many institutions, numerous uh, scholars and professors, uh, one of which are led by our founder and CEO, Dr. Irene Ng. And the problem they set out to solve is how does one deliver grant and ultimately have legal ownership of data? And what uh, Irene and team landed on and what then spun out uh, to be commercialized as DataSwift is that, in fact, in, in most, if not all jurisdictions, we cannot own data, but we can own the container. And I like to use sort of a simple analogy that if you and I, Jason, went out to do a real estate deal and wanted to buy a lake, a body of water, in fact, we, we generally cannot own the lake, but we can own the basin. And so similarly, we cannot own personal data necessarily, but we can own the container. And so what does that mean? That means that the ability to give durable ownership to an individual over what is in fact a small piece of infrastructure, but of course we don't 
present it that way to individuals is what then confers to them the ability to control that data, to grant access to that data, and ultimately to have more sovereignty over what happens with that data. Now, the counter to that, of course, is that most enterprises, most organizations have understandably sought to centralize, to collect centralized control that data. And as you noted, the tension, the contention that happens between these two uh, poles is what is the right fit? And so we don't advocate for rip and replace. We're not advocating that organizations go out and throw all their data into the wind. What we are saying is that we see a fork in the road. There is a shift. I think it's, it's undeniable. Whether it is the increasingly numerous and onerous regulatory frameworks from GDPR, which most all of our listeners, I'm sure, are familiar with, to SHREMS2, so on and so forth. And so as those regulatory layers increase, as the cost of compliance goes up, I think it begs the question, is there a different way? Is there a better way? And uh, we believe, of course, that we, we have that way. Excellent. So let's talk about the paradigm of the market when you entered into it and what data looked like. So for years, data was just an abuse thing that people collected when they were selling you another service, right? Whatever the necessary mm-hmm. amount was. And mm-hmm. lo and behold, a couple of companies in Silicon Valley, the biggest ones being Google and then Facebook, basically realized that all of this kind of exhaust that they're running off, hey, there's a lot of value to this because we're collecting so much of this that we can start to predict behavior and better use that to target ads. So lo and behold, the age of surveillance capitalism, as it is so so termed by Shoshana Zubov, who wrote the book of the same name, basically is born. And now you have global data, the global data economy that is basically resulting in more more revenue and more GDP output than oil. So the reality is we've all woken up to the fact that people's information is of value. Maybe not valuable for the each individual person, but on the aggregate, it is incredibly powerful in terms of mm-hmm. in terms of predicting consumer behavior. And the paradigm we've lived in thus far is one where the companies who collected that data were the ones with the rights and access to it. And by the time we all woke up to it and realized, hey, there's value to our individual data, it was a little bit too late. Now we're trying to pry it back from. So that's just kind of just the backdrop for people to talk about. So let's talk about specifically how you guys are tackling this. And you talked about um, infrastructure from a couple of standpoints, but I want to go back to what you said here about the the container, right? So I kind of see what you did here. Correct me if I'm wrong. Data rights around the world are a mess. Some countries have basically entrenched them as everybody's got a right to their own data, to you have the right to access it, to not even recognizing as an issue. And instead of basically trying to solve that problem, you said, well, Sure, but you can own a container or a bucket that holds that data. Is that kind of the, the workaround or jujitsu move you guys pulled? <laughs> I like I like the jujitsu reference. It, it is in essence, and, and if I understood you correctly, or perhaps just to to restate that, our our I would agree absolutely with the way you characterize the challenges on the enterprise side of managing and ultimately being compliant with these legislative frameworks. And on the individual side, though. As Irene, our founder, is wont to say, most individuals would give away all of their personal data for a slice of pizza. I think there is an you know awareness. offering pizza. Deep dish, thin crust, it depends. But yeah. just this morning, for example, I received an email from Have I Been Pwned, which, you know, if you're not familiar, oh, yeah. is a site that yeah, you'll register with. And so, you know, in this case, it's Park Mobile, 21 million people in that breach, license plates, email addresses, phone numbers, you name it. And so I say that to indicate or to illustrate rather that centralized data is a liability, right? And, and, and we stand firmly on that position. And so it is not a matter of if you will be breached, it is when. 
And so I think the operative question for, for most enterprises on a sliding scale, which of course it's a little more nuanced than that, how much data do you want to retain given the inevitability of a breach, right? Given the inevitability of a lawsuit, of a class action. And it's not to fear monger, it's just to say that I think it's observably true that these things happen. If Facebook cannot keep their data safe, likely we cannot either, right? And by we, I mean anyone out there collecting data in centralized lakes, warehouses, and the like. And so there is a calculus to determining how much to retain. And then the balance, we would say, can be given to the individual. And by that, I mean, give it back. So be it a subject access request that then feeds those data into, as we call it, a personal data account, or the creation of new data. And let me let me just sort of cut through this and illustrate a couple of examples. And so two of our clients, one in fintech and one in health tech, and I know that your audience is, is fintech, but I'll use the two, uh, both pointing to the same design pattern. In the case of our fintech client, they are working in concert with one of the world's largest uh, property and casualty insurers in South America to grant insurance products to individuals who are unbanked or underbanked. And so how are they doing that? How ultimately are they deriving a risk score that allows them to provide these products? And so what they landed upon was the ability to take the likes of person, the likes rather of Facebook data, Strava, Fitbit, Fitbit, excuse me, a multitude of data sources, pull those in to the individual consumer's personal data account, and then run a computation at the edge, which then in turn returns only a risk score. So if we cut out the techno speak, what that means is I'm able to run my calculation on novel first party data in the sense that it's pulled in from the source by the consumer through a subject access request and therefore becomes first party. I can run that calculation, come back with a single number, floating point number that tells me the risk that I need to make a decision upon. Now, I'm no finance expert, so, so I, I have not uh, delivered that with great aplomb. But the point being, I don't need to bring with that score the liability of all the underlying data. Because if we step back and we're objective about it, we don't need that underlying data. We just need the insight that it provides. And so that's an example in insurance, in fintech. Similarly, in health, and in particular, this is a COVID risk scoring solution. This particular consumer app enables us to complete a self-directed survey and then take a selfie. And there's some fantastic computer science that goes in and computer vision that goes into analyzing that photograph to determine ultimately a risk score for our exposure to COVID. And so here too, our client did not want access to any of that underlying health data. They simply wanted the score, which is then passed on to their clients, to venues and universities and private workplaces who can, in aggregate, which you referenced earlier, get the true value out of the data. And so a single score derived from all this deeply uh, personal or PII in aggregate with thousands, hundreds of thousands of others gives us the real insight and the real magic and without being exposed to all that underlying personal that personally identifiable information. So let's let's talk about this from a from like a user standpoint. So I'm going to start off with let's talk about the most important part of this: the consumer. Right. From the consumer standpoint, how does your product work? Like, what is their, sure. their experience? Great question. So the user experience is not at all unlike 
sign in with Facebook, sign in with Google, sign in with Twitter, in that they are either using their existing personal data account to sign into this new application that they've downloaded, two of which I've I've given examples, or if they don't have one already, it's a quick sign up. So for those of your listeners who are developers, we might say that it's not unlike a Firebase backend as a service. And so in other words, if you, Jason, and I were going to go create a new consumer uh, mobile application, we need some way to manage accounts and profiles and, and data attached to and concerning our users. And we have a number of ways we can do that. So we offer an experience to the developer and an experience, as you say, most importantly, to the consumer, to the user, that is just like what they expect in those traditional so-called user flows, but for the difference that they legally own that tiny bit of cloud infrastructure. And in owning it and in doing that, they then have legal ownership of the data and the ability, not unlike, say, a musician licensing their music to Spotify, to grant particularly specific rights and uses of that data back to an enterprise. Got it. So again, good analogy or good simple, a good, simple, familiar thing. And we're all used to sign it with X, right? So you right. become another option for that. So let's talk Correct. about the acquisition of that, right? So I mean, I've got my sign in with Google, Facebook, Apple. GitHub, you name it. God right. knows yeah, how many the, the list goes on and on, right? It just yeah. keeps on getting bigger. But the key difference here, as, as you stated, is the difference is, is that you're not tying back to someone else's access to your data. You're tying back to your own personal data locker. So essentially, Correct. this is all your stuff and all stuff that doesn't go out unless you give authorization. Okay, great. So, Correct. but here's the bigger question: acquisition. So, how do you acquire these consumers? Because there's a lot of there's a lot of competition and noise, and people don't Absolutely. necessarily gonna know the difference. So, how is it that you're going to basically acquire these companies? Or acquire yeah, these key users? question. Absolutely, key question. And so, what we have elected to do. And we're an early stage company. Seed round was closed in September of 2019. So certainly I think we've done some fantastic things, but I also would note that we're, we're early still. And so with that, we are not for everyone. And I think we state that quite clearly. And so what we have not elected to do doesn't mean we won't, is we haven't elected to go spend $20 million with a direct consumer campaign acquiring users in that way. What we are doing is acquiring users through the applications built on our platform. It is a more managed growth as opposed to, you know, sort of the rolling thunder of a direct-to-consumer campaign. But the short answer is we're doing it through the value that applications deliver because we would say that yet another user account, yet another data locker, yet another thing to sign in with is not inherently valuable, right? So we're very sober about that. But rather, given an option to use or engage with a particular experience, be that a neobank or a health passport or, or whatever that experience may be, given the option to give it all to Google versus to own the data yourself and control and manage that data, we think an increasing number of individuals will choose the latter. Fair enough. So essentially, it's a partnership rollout, which makes a lot of sense. And, and frankly, it was, for lack of better terms, the that same similar strategy for everybody else, as much as everybody's got the sign in with your other accounts now functionality, which solves a problem for these other companies to not have to worry about 
data collection themselves, but realize right. but allow identity to be managed by someone else. What you're saying is they solve the problem and they solve the problem. And if we offer all the people jumping on that for options, then that wouldn't basically exist as an option currently. So, all right. So your differentiator is, is basically we're the same, but you own it. Mm-hmm. And we're going to partner with people to get it out there. So talk to me from the standpoint of the appeal to the developers that exist out there and, and the companies that you're working to work with for, uh, for, for partnership. Now, you is bet. it so like, are, are you basically like, I think here's the thing, I, you know, talking to technology guys, especially ones that are in early stage, most of them tend to respect data rights uh, more so than governments do and understand the power of it. I think the right. larger entrenched players probably just don't want to hate the idea of something like you where they wouldn't be able to keep it themselves. But yes. are you basically going to them and saying, here's a solution, like what you're familiar with, but appealing to their sense of, like, let's call it justice or morality? Is that is that part of the entire mix? Well, you know, and I, to, to me, I would say that's the icing on the cake. And yeah. we certainly have have a host of developers that that see that. And in fact, for example, on May 15 and 16, we have a virtual hackathon, which is focused on energy and particularly renewables. And so I point that out as an illustration. Last year, it was a virtual COVID hackathon, out of which a number of tremendous applications emerged. So what I mean to indicate is that we have last year's hackathon with 900 participants. We have this year's coming up, which we expect a terrific turnout as well, where we got a a great cross-section of hackers, developers, designers, and what is it? hackers and hustlers, as it were. And so if we look at the cross-sections, there are those who are absolutely privacy advocates. And you know, I am that person as well. And so we, we love them and we appreciate their participation. However, we don't think that we can succeed by simply relying on that. We need to give these developers a superpower. And the superpower that we provide to them is to keep the chief data officer and the chief compliance officer from breathing down their necks. Right. So in other words, if I build on Data Swift 1, if I build on this platform, I am sidestepping in many ways the hassle, the headaches of running through legal. Right. It doesn't mean legal doesn't have its say, particularly in fintech. Let's face it, legal always has its say. But that in taking these applications out of scope for regulations like GDPR and TRIMS2 and HIPAA, the developers, the software engineers have one less thing to worry about and much more time to focus on solving interesting engineering problems. Makes a lot of sense. I mean, it's, we'll call, we'll go back to microservices as a concept. At the end of the day, you can go ahead and try to solve the problem yourself and waste your dev cycles, especially when you're early on in life on this mm-hmm. problem. Or you could simply right. say, hey, this problem has been solved several ways. And this one just happens to be one that also, boy, no question about who owns this data. So therefore, not only are we empowering the user, but we're also solving our own problem, which makes a lot of sense. Which also brings up the question of whether or not, yeah, I think, I think frankly, one of your best friends for anyone who basically chooses to use you and only you, if that's an option, I think one of your best friends will be the Apple Store's new uh, report card on on data privacy and access it to, has to data. Certainly been interesting, right? And I mean, we, yeah, uh, yeah I'm glad you brought that up. And it's a trend that we're very bullish on. Obviously, there's a lot to, there's a lot of facets of that gem that that we could look at, and a lot of different perspectives on whether that is a, a hostile a hostile act uh, from Apple to small businesses and small app developers, but we we think it's a net positive. And I think it is just one of a large growing trend of awareness. And you know, I would add to that that I think so many consumers who we have that segment who would give it all away for a slice of pizza, but we have a lot. We sort of the middle of the bell curve. There's the privacy nerds like me on the one end, there's the other end of the spectrum, perhaps those who just don't care. And in the middle, we think in the middle of that bell curve are most who 
are concerned but don't know what to do. They don't know how to improve their privacy posture and to, to get back control of their personal data. And so it's this private by default or this privacy by default that iOS 14.5 and Apple are bringing that we think is an important step in, in the direction as opposed to opt out of everything. It's, it's opt in. And I've said it more than once on, I think, probably on this podcast and elsewhere. I'm sorry, but I get why some company, you know, the entire hostile attack on some companies would see that because they monetize that data. But just like I say, when it comes to the world of finance in the world of technology, if you find yourself on the wrong side of what is in the consumer's best interest and empowering and just basically empowering them, you're on the wrong side, period. And it's a matter of time before consumers realize that are presented with better options and opt into those better options. And you know, Absolutely. you're right about the slice of pizza. Like, you know, when you basically made that joke, I kind of said, I didn't realize pizza was on the table because I kind of, <laughs> you know, depending depending on the table, depending on the, the data you want, I might be willing to make that trade-off. And that's, but that's, I guess I represent an informed consumer for, as an example. And that informed consumer is saying, hey, I will make a trade-off. I will, for the benefit of the use of something like a Gmail or whatever else that might be that is now going to cost me, it's not free. I never consider it free. It's going to cost me nothing. Certainly. On a monetary basis, I am willing to provide access to data. The question to date, unfortunately, it's been it's been completely convoluted, lopsided, non-disclosed, and just kind of a black box where, you know, I applaud Apple for it to say, hey, this is, you know what, just make an informed decision. And that's that's all we should be we, we should Absolutely. always be doing is informed consent. This is all about Absolutely. And, and you know, I'd be remiss to not clarify, perhaps, or to emphasize that I think what what is quite different about Data Swift and and frankly, one of the key reasons I joined in my conversations long and deep with Irene and our founder is that we don't take the position of a, a nanny, if you will, uh, not yeah. to belittle that term. But the point is, we're not a nanny there to say what should and should not be kept private and personal. Rather, we create standardized data conduct, not unlike standardized financial conduct, so that the, to your point, the individual has a clear understanding. So we, for example, in the user flow that is uh, plugged in by way of using our platform, we, or rather the applications built on us through our infrastructure, communicate the why, what, when, and how. And so why are we going to use your personal data, which uh, or what data specifically, what are we going to do with it, how, and for how long? And so without getting into the weeds, and that can be presented at different layers of depth so as not to, to necessarily bury the, the user. But the idea, ultimately, back to your point, is informed consent, right? right. It's, not, it's not a walled garden. It is not a saying to an enterprise, to a fintech, that this is what you must do with the data, but rather uh, that both parties benefit when each knows what the other is doing. So let's talk about your monetization strategy. So you guys are providing this protocol, this infrastructure uh, in place to help solve for protecting one's information and letting it out only when they agree and consent to the proper information being let out. But how is it that you make money? Sure. And so it's quite straightforward. So we have two pricing models that you can go to dataswift.io slash pricing. One is a consumption-based model. And that is to say that depending upon how many API calls a particular application consumes, there are tiered pricing. And then probably not surprising, we also have a sort of an enterprise plus scheme where what we're able to do and some of the deals that we've done for larger scale deployments is to fix a cost per user per year. Right. So we have the ability to offer to clients, be they startups or large enterprises, either a predictable fixed monthly subscription, not unlike what they might see with various AWS services and otherwise, or to say, based on our revenue model, it makes more sense to have a predictable unit cost per user per annum. And we can do that as well. 
So in the day you're solving a problem for them, they're monetizing however they're monetizing. You're taking a small cut of that as infrastructure, which is, you know, as an infrastructure player, exactly how, how it should be done. And the end consumer gets the benefit of all this and the benefit of their data and production of their data with no additional out-of-pocket cost at this point. So Absolutely. in effect, also, I mean, I think I've talked about this and for the record, uh, I'll, I'll plug the, the, the lead here. So my, my good friend, Tyler Weir is one of your developers and this is how we first got connected. And in our Happy conversations- Happy to say I brought Tyler in. Well, you you made a good choice. Um, <laughs> Absolutely, I'm not saying that just as my friend. I'm also saying that as is yeah. based on his track record. So that said, the you know a lot of what you're doing here is essentially you're redesigning what was a two-sided marketplace with massive information asymmetry, aka, well hey, I have inf- well I have something of value. I am giving it to you or trading it for something, but I really don't understand the value of what I'm giving up or how much I'm giving up. And what you've now done is you've entered that, you're trying to enter that two-sided marketplace in order to eliminate the asymmetry and allow greater control over monetization of our data. So right now we're talking about exchange of data for the use of a free app. But at the same time, I have to imagine at scale, you guys could facilitate things like research studies or Absolutely. marketing studies where people could get mass marketed and said, hey, here's a marketing study being done or basically, or for example, a default opt-in, right? I could, I could program a default opt-in that says, hey, if, if they want to use my data, this data, this data, this data, this data, all anonymized, of course, for a marketing study, as long as it's just this data automatically opt me in and I could just have money show up in my, in my bank account in exchange for my data going forward. Very astute, very astute. And so while we have not yet arrived or don't have deployments that reflect that last mile, which is which is direct remuneration to the individual, we do think that that is on the horizon. And some would say sort of more old school terminology is data co-op. I think the more contemporary, you know, is a data union or data exchange. We're in a host of conversations and a host of pilots that are focused there. And so it's to say that whether it is clinical drug trials or it is uh, data enrichment, or it is customer activation and acquisition in the way that multitudes of brands come together and either share information in a way that enhances all of their lines of business. Maybe it's benchmarking without having to expose, of course, some of the underlying confidential details, or it is, let's say, digitally native vertical brands. You sell chips, I sell beer. Wouldn't it be nice if we could, in a way that is, again, privacy preserving and opt-in, be able to provide offers to individuals and consumers? And so we think there's a lot of exciting opportunity at the sort of nexus of what you've just described. Yep, absolutely. It's been something I've been talking about in this podcast for several years now, probably going back to the first year is the flipping of the paradigm of we're just giving it away in exchange for, you know, let's say a slice of pizza, but we're definitely, we're definitely Mm -hmm. not getting, you know, our fair, you know, let's put it this way. Facebook and Google are valued at what they're valued at, not because of what they charge, charge business because of the data they contain that directs information. So, and I'll liken you almost to the concept of a fat protocol, which is used in, um, used in the discussion of, uh, of cryptocurrencies where they say, you know, at the end of the day, the, the protocols were on HTML and whatnot were free and everybody built these giant organizations over top of them. Instead, in a lot of ways, crypto kind of potentially flips that paradigm and allows the revenue to accrue or a large share of the revenue to accrue to the protocol itself. In a lot of ways, mm-hmm. this is not the protocol. The we're flipping, we're flipping the entire narrative to, hey, the owners of the data are the ones who benefit directly with knowledge, with consent, with choice, and not yes. just basically, hey, I you gave me this cool social media app to load my pictures to, but I didn't realize you were scanning them for pictures of my kids. And absolutely. Yeah. Well, as the, as the adage has, has been for many, many years, and I believe, you know, attributed largely to Facebook is if the product is free, you are the product. Right. And I think, um, 
that has been true long enough that the winds are blowing in a different direction. And I, and I would also add, without naming names, that one of the large global accounting and auditing firms that we've been in conversation with already has models for how to value data on the P&Ls of, of, of some of these very large companies. And so the percentage of their valuation attributed to those troves, those hordes of data are shocking, or maybe not, depending on who you ask. But I think it's it's undeniable that, as you say, they have built, you know, they built these these unicorns on the backs of data that has largely been without the consent of the individuals. Absolutely. Yeah, well, without consent is absolutely. I mean, again, this was kind of almost a stumble upon marketplace, right? It, they, they never, you know, Google was never started with the intent of monetizing mass amounts of data for advertising. It kind absolutely. of was a byproduct, right? And so they absolutely. stumbled upon an incredibly lucrative uh, source of revenue. So, and hey, maybe you and I would have done the same thing, right? But I think it, it's it's a different time. And so, so I yeah. think in, in summary, you know, they will, I'm sure, adapt. And we and others like us are providing solutions for how to find a market that is more freely accessible by all participants. Agreed. And, you know, it's, it's you know, we can say it's larger than some of unintended consequences. You start doing because, hey, this is lucrative. And next thing you know, an entire massive industry is blown up around it. And suddenly you've, you know, managed to create all these issues surrounding data rights and, and access and everything else and bad actors in the space who basically don't protect it the right way or bad actors in the space who extract far more than they should be in order to monetize right. it. With, you know, so, so you know, it's, it's again, it's the sum of unintended consequences. It's much the same as like, you know, Facebook sought out to create a community building tool and lo and mm-hmm. behold, whoops, turns out some bad communities start forming on here and right. they had, there's some negative implications. How do we, how do we police this? You know, it's sometimes it's hard to, it's really hard to fix the problem once, once the thing's gotten away from you. So before we wrap up, there's three questions I ask everybody to kind of end on a positive note and get you, get us thinking. The first one is if you had one wish for something you could change in your product or industry as a whole, what would it be? Great question. I would love an ROI calculator for personal data. If I could give you, Jason, my data.me, I'm making that up, right? And if you could somehow automatically see the market value of your personal data, I think that would drive a lot more awareness than perhaps some of the, I might say, fear-mongering that is, is used to, to rattle cages these days. Absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Second question for you. What's been the biggest challenge to date in getting to where you guys are currently? I think it is the entrenched default operationalized behavior of collect it all, keep it all. And that is understandable, right? I mean, as you say, the moniker of data as the new oil and looking at behemoths like Google and how they've gotten to where they've gotten points to success in that model and in that approach. And so I think we go around talking about the carrot, not the stick, right? It is not our job, my job to go and and try to Uh scare organizations into change. What we're trying to do is to show them a way, to show them a middle path, if you will, where they can store less data, derive in some cases, even more value, more insights, uh, while uh, taking a posture that is going to, and and Gartner and so many others have, have demonstrated this, is actually going to... Uh, produce much greater revenue uh, growth for them when consumers trust them. So in other words, you can, in effect, have your cake and eat it too, right? You can garner the insights, drive the decision-making, drive the growth, while still being able to earn and keep the trust of consumers, which unquestionably is how brands succeed in the future. 
Yeah, it's um, it's interesting too because, like, I look, you know, in my country, there's uh, certain laws that basically regarding privacy that state we're only supposed to collect whatever data is necessary to do our job. Well, and frankly, the honest truth is, is that there's a lot of easy ways to justify how that data grab can be extended, right? Like, oh, creek, just, right? Yeah. You know, yeah, totally. Right. Like we could talk about the degree of importance, which is different from the, right. which is, which Scoring. is different. So even if, yeah, exactly. Right. So like, absolutely. Do I need your, do I need your date of birth and name in order to even open an account? Absolutely. I need that. Do I need um, to know what your shoe size is? Well, you could argue that if I also send gifts or rewards to, to clients that, Hey, that is not so much uh, a concern, but I can collect that data because I've got a reason. Yeah. And in fact, I would just, I know we're, we're wrapping up, so I don't want to go too far in, but you raise what is, I think, a great example. And so KYC AML, which I know is a deep trove of complexity, but right. I would posit that in, in the example you posed, do you need my date of birth or do you need to know that I'm over a certain age? Right. For example. So I well, I'm in KYC return... world. So the answer is I need to know your date of birth, but for many right. cases, well, you're absolutely yeah. right. Yeah. Right. So, so, you know, in, in a particular use case of, of KYC AML, and you know, FATFA and 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 all of these all these entities. Of course, it's in, it's incredibly onerous. But I think where and where I certainly hope we're trending is the ability to take a, a thin slice of that underlying personal data and to cryptographically, verifiably demonstrate the outcome or the aspect you're looking for without the PII. So am I over 21 and therefore in the United States can buy alcohol? Check. Am I accredited investor? Because you've been able to verify my assets and net worth check. And so those are the sorts of things that we look at and, and our clients are looking at as a way to, again, minimize the exposure to the inevitable breaches uh, while still being able to get business done. So last question for you is what excites you the most about what it is you're working on and gets you up in the morning every day to fight the good fight? Yeah. You know, I think it is, I mean, I'm a geek long ago, earned a degree in computer science and really never, though I moved rapidly into the business side of things, I love to see builders built. And it's incredibly exciting to see what developers are building on our platform and the creative ways that they're using it. I think it is extremely exciting to see uh, shifts in the approaches and the mentalities. I mean, the existence of a chief data officer, right, is a title that, to my knowledge, didn't exist even perhaps four or five years ago. And the fact that there are now executive C-suite roles that aren't just looking at compliance, but are looking at a balanced approach to data products as they serve the business internally, but also as they expose themselves, be it positive or negative, to consumers and to the market. And so it's the shift in attitudes which are happening, you know, perhaps slower than, than those of us on the, uh, on the right side of that bell curve would like, but they're happening nonetheless. And it's watching developers build great products. Well, I mean, you're definitely empowering it. And I, I would say you're on the side of angels on this one, because honestly, um, again, as I will said, as I said before, you're on the wrong side of the consumer, whether that be their rights, their experience, or basically just respecting them in any way, shape or form, you're on the wrong side in the, in the long run. And people are going to recognize that and choose another option once presented with sunshine is the greatest value. disinfectant, right? Oh, I'm a big believer in that. Don't get me started on disclosure of compensation <laughs> in my industry. Anyway, so... Um, <laughs> So that said, uh, Sean, I thank you for your time. I very much appreciate it. And uh, thank you, anyone Jason. who's listening, who's a uh, who starts to see the DataSwift logo, please sign up for an account. It's going to hopefully start to trickle out in the next little while. And any developer looking to basically care to looking to get a solution is to keep them keep them safe on their own end. Take a hard look. As always, if you enjoyed this podcast, please leave a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, wherever you get your podcasts. And until next time, take care. 
This podcast was brought to you by Woodgate Financial, an award-winning financial planning firm catering to high net worth individuals and their families. To learn more, go to woodgate.com. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, and Google Play, or find more episodes at jasonperera.ca.